sermon text this morning is Psalm 84, which is printed right there below the song we just sang. I do invite you, if you brought your Bible, to go ahead and uh, open it up to Psalm 84. And we will be reading uh, this psalm in its entirety. So again, our passage this morning is Psalm 84, uh, beginning at verse 1. Let us give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. One of my earliest childhood memories uh, is a feeling. It's a feeling of anticipation and excitement leading up to something that I have been looking forward to. So this is an event that has been circled on, on the calendar for weeks and months. And so this could be a vacation that's coming up. This could be Christmas Day. This could be a trip to an amusement park. This could be summer break at the end of a summer vacation. And you count down the days, right? You check them off and finally the day comes. And at some point during that long-awaited day or toward the end of that vacation, it dawns on you that everything you have been anticipating and looking forward to has come. And that's a bummer. Now, here's what I didn't know as a child. That feeling never goes away. I'm guessing all of us know what it is to have arrived at the place that we have longed to be, and then it dawns on us, and it can be like halfway through, and you realize, oh no, this is coming to an end. How about this experience? This is something a little different. We're really good at reshaping our memories to tell better stories about particular things in our lives. Um, Case in point, the happiest place on earth is a place where you look around and you see children crying, throwing temper tantrums. You see moms and dads snapping at each other. And yet somehow we've all walked away thinking that is the happiest place on earth. My family took a trip a couple years ago to Colorado, and in my head, that was the most wonderful experience of my life, and and I've talked many times since about just, I can't wait to go back and just be just part of this, this beautiful creation that God has made in the mountains of Colorado. And so one time I'm waxing, I'm waxing lyrical about it. I can't wait to go back to Colorado. And, and Cassie goes, I can't believe that you're so eager to go back. You were miserably sick the whole time. 
Like you don't remember gagging down Mucinex sore throat spray in a Target parking lot. And I kind of remember that. What if we're all trying to get somewhere that doesn't exist in this world? I think that's the point. What if we're all trying to get somewhere that doesn't exist in this world? We're all looking for deep satisfaction. There is a pressure to find it. We are given this pressure to find happiness and satisfaction. And so we look to family. We look to our work. We look to those times that we're off of work. We are all on the hunt to find fulfillment. And Psalm 84 speaks to this hunt. It has what I think is some of the most beautiful language that a, a pen has ever put to parchment, a language that speaks to our deep desire for our hearts to be satisfied, to come to a place and experience deep rest. It speaks to the idea of longing for something and finding it. Now, my mind originally went to this idea of trips, of vacations, because really that's what this psalm is about. The author is recalling all of these trips that he has made over the years as a pilgrim heading to Jerusalem, to the temple. He's recalling those times when he has gathered in the courts of the Lord with the people of God to enjoy the presence of God. And there he's telling us, it's there that my soul found rest. There's a temptation when it comes to preaching a sermon on New Year's Day. Maybe to talk about resolutions or hopes and dreams and aspirations for the coming year. But I want to kick off this year meditating on this psalm that is about desiring and finding the fullness of life. This appetite that I insist we all have. Verse 11 is really the crescendo of this song. It's, 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 the, it's the grand finale. Uh, it, it all builds to this point where we are celebrating together. For the Lord is our sun and our shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. Now we get sick of the sun in Southern California. I really get sick of the sun in Southern California. But let's face it, even this week, the sun feels pretty good, doesn't it? Some cold and rainy and gloomy days. And when that sun comes out to sit and just absorb the rays of the sun, uh, we all understand what it means for sun to represent joy. To absorb the warmth, contentment. So the Lord is our sun. He is our joy. That's the first point. That's where fullness is found. That's why fullness is found in God. He is our joy. He is our sun. And then God is our shield. Two things I think we're hunting for as human beings. Every society, every culture, we're looking for joy. And I know many of us are also driven by fear. And so we're also looking for security. And the Lord is our shield. So two points as we'll work our way through Psalm 84. The Lord is our joy, and then the Lord is our security. First of all, Psalm 84 makes the case that knowing God brings joy. So there's something about being in a relationship with God. There, there's something about knowing God that brings this deep and lasting joy. Three times in this short psalm, um, the, the author announces who the blessed are. Verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. And then in the final verse, verse 12, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Now, blessed might be kind of a churchy word for us. We kind of use it in a religious context. We get around other Christians, we start talking about blessings, and, we, and, and you know, I, I've been known to sign my emails, blessings. We kind of use that to, to maybe baptize a lot of how we think of things, and that's okay. Uh, maybe it's lost a little bit of meaning because, you know, today it's, it's not unpopular for maybe an Instagram influencer to, to brag about their new car with hashtag blessed. But what does blessed mean? 
In Hebrew, the word really should just be translated happy. The problem is we struggle with the idea of happiness. Happiness comes from the English word for happenstance, which basically means when good things come into your life by chance or just by circumstances, then you're happy. But we know, I think, that's not blessedness. That's not blessedness, to to depend on the circumstances of life like that. I've loved the old English word felicity. Uh, That was the word the Puritans used quite often. We don't use it very much, but felicity gets at this idea of intense happiness, which gets to a deeper happiness, something that we'd probably want to call contentment. And that's what our psalmist is talking about. For those who know God, there is a deep contentedness that this relationship with God brings. Knowing God brings him joy. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. If you could go anywhere in the world with cost being no consideration, where would you go? What's your dream vacation? Is it a European tour through the great cities of of Prague and Paris and Strasbourg? Barcelona, London? Is it an African safari? Is it it the Great Barrier Reef in Australia? Is it Japan? I mean, how amazing would it be? All expenses paid, where in the world would you go? And I think the psalmist would say, yeah, that sounds great, but I would get more lasting joy with just one day in the presence of God. Why so much more joy? Verse 2, my soul yearns and even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. My heart, my soul, my flesh, my entire being is crying out for God. Now, it's tempting to look at Psalm 84 and see this as hyperbole. The psalmist really would like that all-expenses-paid trip to Europe. This is just, he's just being a little bit over the top here. I don't think that's true. I think he's introducing categories that we don't know how to think about. I've been to Paris. I think it is the greatest city in the world. I would love to go back. My soul and my heart and my spirit do not faint for it. What does your heart and soul and spirit faint for? And my guess is that most of us would say nothing. See how it's not hyperbole? He's introducing concepts that we're not working with. Uh, this, it reminds me of, of, of C.S. Lewis's probably most memorable, greatest quote from his essay, The Weight of Glory, where he talks about how we are far too easily pleased, right? We're, we're like little children. We're satisfied making mud pies in the slums when there's a chance for a holiday at the sea. And so maybe this psalm also functions to awaken our desires, Right? It's a tragedy of the sin of greed. It's, there's nothing silly about greed. Greed is this exploration and trying to find meaning through stuff and through accumulation. And there is nothing at the end of the treasure map. There's not joy. There's not contentment. There's just more searching. What's the point? So our psalm is saying that deep down inside what he needed, what we need, what our souls cry out for more than anything else is our relationship with God. You were created to live your life in communion with God. That is the purpose of your life as a human being. Just as a lamp was designed to give light, a chair was designed to hold someone upright, a human being, a man, a woman, a child is created to be in relationship with his or her creator. Your chief and highest end, the Westminster Catechism say, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, and that is done through knowing him. 
And so, so much of the pain and the brokenness and the gravity of sin is how it, it takes off, and sin is very hard to stop once it, once it begins, and it just bulldozes our lives and our relationships. And the reason for this is that we have forgotten what we were created for. We were not created to be consumers. Our chief and highest end is not to be a worker. Work is good and dignifying, but it's not our chief purpose. Our purpose is not to have fun. We receive many good gifts from God, including the the ability and the reception of fun things, but that too is not our purpose. We were created in the image of God and designed to know the God of all creation, who we as Christians know even more spectacularly, not only as our creator, but our redeemer. And the psalmist is saying that the reason one day is better than a thousand days elsewhere is because when he is with God, his soul is satisfying. When he is with God, he is home. He is doing what he was created to do. Why is there so much lack of joy in our culture? We are the wealthiest society in history. The poorest person in this room, I I mean this, a a king, a king in in ancient history would look at you and think you you were wealthier than they could ever imagine. You have more luxuries than many of the world's kings have ever had. We are the wealthiest society in history, and yet we live in an epidemic of despair and anxiety and addiction. Every high school in this country is on edge right now because we live in a culture of despair. Why? We're not living as we're supposed to live. Have you ever heard of zucosis? Uh, I found this concept in, in a book I really appreciated reading last year. It's a book called You Are Not Your Own by an author named Alan Noble. And he introduced this concept of zucosis, which is repetitive behavioral patterns in animals that have no goal or function. The best example is go to a big cat exhibit, and they'll, and they'll walk aimlessly. They'll pace back and forth, which is a behavior that they don't do in the wild. The lion eats food designed by brilliant scientists. Every calorie is designed for that lion's optimization. The lion's habitat was not designed haphazardly. These were the greatest zoological minds putting this habitat together. And yet, Noble writes, the lion is still caged. People still point and stare at it and take photographs all day long. The lion still smells churros and hot dogs cooking. He still hears the cries of animals that belong on entirely different continents. He still sleeps in what smells like an artificial cave. We're kind of like that lion. We live in a society that wasn't really designed for human beings. He says this, he says, Before you can build a habitat for humans, you must have an idea of what humans are. What do they do? How do they live? Why do they live? What do they need? And so here's the problem. Our culture, and I don't think this is a new problem. There are intense ways we experienced it in 2023 now. But our culture doesn't remotely have any idea how to answer those questions. We were made to know God, to love God, to live a life that is received as a gift from God. And the psalmist, and what I think is very liberating, he says, from this place of rest and satisfaction, everything in me is crying out to you, the one who can satisfy What your soul is crying out for is not more stuff. It's not one more accomplishment. It's not one more promotion. It's not one more buzz. None of this will ever satisfy us because you were created for God. And friends, the gospel seeks to this central desire, doesn't it? 
Why did Jesus come? Among other reasons, he came to reconcile those who were alienated. He came to reconcile those who were lost, those who were far off. He came to bring us to God. Jesus spoke of being the true vine. Attach yourself to me because this is where life is found. And what for? And Jesus says that your joy may be complete. So knowing God means joy. And that's one thing we're hunting for. But knowing God also means security, something else that we're hunting for, and he keeps us secure. Okay, we have to be careful, right? To speak of God as our shield, it doesn't mean that, that he's this kind of protective bubble around our lives where, where no uh, pain is inflicted upon believers. No, knowing God doesn't keep us out of the storm. Instead, God is a refuge and shelter for those of us who are in the storm. We are all at some point in the storm. To know God is not to be kept from hard things. Uh, it doesn't mean that sorrow and difficulty will be spared. And in fact, that's what Psalm 84 tells us in verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Now, we're not sure what this valley of Baca really is. We just know it's not a good place. The word Baca in Hebrew sounds very close to, to weeping, and so that makes sense. So some translations even go on a limb, and they say this is the valley of tears, the, the valley of weeping. Our, our mothers and fathers in the faith called life the veil of tears. That probably is right, but maybe it could also be a, a Baca sounds just like this kind of tree that grows in, in the Near East that only grows in very arid and dry places. And so the, the point we can be safe in knowing is that the Valley of Baca is a place that we don't want to be in, but we will all at some point be in it. Those who set their hearts on knowing God, they will go through this hard valley. And so where is our security found? And I think we can see a couple aspects of our security in the Lord in this psalm. First of all, God is with us. God takes up residence not only in Zion, but he takes up residence in the valley of Baca. I love what one commentator says. He says, the reason the darkness may be faced and lived in is that even in the darkness there is one to address because this one has promised to be in the darkness with us. We find the darkness strangely transformed, not by the power of easy light, but by the power of relentless solidarity. We go into the valley, and so does God with his people. In the valley of Baca, you will find God there. In the valley of loneliness, you will find God there. In the valley of depression, in the valley of chemotherapy treatments, in the valley of grief, our God goes with us. Our hearts yearn for Zion in the valley. But it's not just that we long to get out of the valley. It's that God is with us, and we also have this further hope that God transforms the valley. God's presence transforms the desert. Verse 6, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. And so we go through the suffering. We're not immune to it. We go through these valleys, but we also have this understanding and confidence that God uses them to shape us. Now, we have to fight hard not to sentimentalize this. We have to fight hard not to just put on rose-colored theological glasses. Uh, instead, we have to know concretely and why God is at work in my pain and suffering and in the brokenness of this world. It's Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together. 
In the New Testament, James 1 speaks to this idea when he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so even when we go through these valleys, it is because God is there that we will make it. Don't miss this wonderful hopefulness of the hard pilgrim journey here in our text. Because we get the end of the scene. Each one, after the valley, each one appears before God in Zion. And where does confidence come from? It's the God who keeps you. It's not behold my strength that gets through the valley. It's behold our shield. Your assurance does not rest on your ability to handle the desert well. I hope you handle it well. I hope I handle the desert well. But friends, our assurance rests on our great Savior. And so I think this is a word of hope for believers this morning. You'll make it. If you are in Christ, you will make it. I have to think that some of you here this morning need that word. You'll make it. And if that doesn't lead you to long and faint for the presence of God, that you will see him in Zion, there is nothing that will. If you are in him, you will make it, thanks be to God. Each one of us in Christ will appear before him. So the psalmist is celebrating. He's glorying in the security that he has. Verse 9, behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Tents are useful. I know that many of you enjoy tent camping. Uh, But let's be honest, when the wind and rain picks up, tents are great, but maybe they're not everything, right? And weather can have us throw in the towel. And that's the point here. The wicked dwell in tents. That may look nice, but their lives are exposed. So the psalmist has this great line. I want God's house so much that even if I'm just camped out at at the stoop, even if I'm just barely in the, the front door jam, I am more secure there than I am in a tent. I don't need a room. I don't need fancy accommodations. I am safer and more secure, even if you just leave me at the front door. To know God is to know a life that is secure. Then verse 11, that, that crescendo here, right? For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly or blamelessly. And at this point, you might be thinking, now here's the catch. Joy and security are found in those who are upright. Same word as blameless. Joy and security are those who are found blameless. Well, I don't think I qualify as blameless. Hence, joy and security are not something that are offered to me. I don't think that's true. You know, even if you're in Christ, I don't even think I need to go with you're blameless in Jesus because of his righteousness that is given to you by faith. I'm not even going to go there, which is true enough. I'm going to just stay in the Old Testament because blameless in the Old Testament never means perfect. It means someone who walks with God. It means someone who trusts the Lord. It means someone who is living a life of repentance and faith. This doesn't mean that God will will give you everything in your life that you want because you don't know what's good for you. I don't know what's good for me all of the time. Instead, it's to know that God is so committed to his people that everything that he knows you need, he will give it to you and he will bring it to you. He is not a stingy God. He won't withhold anything from you that you truly need. And how can we know this? We read earlier this morning. 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God loved you so much, he gave his son for you. Do you think he's on your side? Look to Jesus, the truly blessed singer of this song, whose heart was singularly set on the beauty of his father's presence. Do you think he is on your side? You look to Jesus and his cross, the one who dwelled in the courts of the father, who dwelled in the courts that he belonged to, but he left those courts in order to seek and save the lost. There you will find the love that you seek. There you will find the joy that you are chasing and the security that you are hunting for. I think the greatest pastoral question ever written outside of the New Testament is what is your only comfort in life and death? It comes from the Heidelberg Catechism of the 16th century of, of the Reformed churches in Germany. It's asking the question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Isn't that such a relevant question? It, it, it rings just as true in, in, in today's world as it does like 500 years ago. Because we are all looking for comfort. Because we are all looking for joy and security. And the answer, it's a beautiful answer, my only hope in life and death, body and soul, is that I belong to Jesus. The rest of your Christian life is just working out that answer. It's living in light of this reality. And so let me appeal to you, to the young people who are here this morning. I can so relate to that need for acceptance. I can so relate to that need to, to figure life out. And that's what we're all trying to do. And it feels so intense when you are young. Uh, would you know that you belong to Jesus? Would you know that? And would you set your heart on the loveliness of, of the dwelling place of God that is already yours by faith? To the moms here this morning who are tired and who are anxious about the future of your children and you don't know if the decisions you're making are right or wrong or somewhere in between, would you know that you belong to Jesus? And would you set your hearts on his dwelling place? Uh, to the person here today who is in a, a season of life that you just don't understand why you are in this season of life, you too belong to Jesus. Would you set your hearts on his dwelling place? And to you who one day will feel your very life slipping, when you're alone in a hospital room and you have tubes and, and IVs that are coming out of your body, your comfort then is the same exact comfort for you now. You belong to God, and better is a single day in his course than a thousand elsewhere. And he has promised far more than just a single day. Beloved of God, he is your son and your shield. O Lord of hosts, how blessed, how happy, how satisfied is the one who trusts in you. Let's pray. Father, by the work of, of your Holy Spirit, would you seal this word into our hearts? That we would be able to sing with, with gusto and with sincerity, Lord, from the depths of our hearts, how lovely is your dwelling place. Lord, that our soul would long and faint for the courts of the Lord, that our hearts and our flesh would sing for joy to the living God. 
The problem is that we come in here so mixed up, so often distracted, so often settling for things that our souls don't long for, and that our hearts and flesh would not for a single moment ever sing for joy. But you are the God who satisfies. And so, Lord, would you change us, not just how we think this morning, but how we desire and how we will and how we love through this word by your spirit. That you would transform our heart, our hearts. You would transform our hearts, O oh Lord. That we would know with such great confidence and conviction that you are our son and our shield. Lord, thank you for Jesus, the blessed one who trusts in you. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.